Hello, I'm Andrew Ryback of Andrew Ryback Photography and a hunter-jumper photographer based in the Midwest and currently expanding out to the East Coast. I wanted to welcome you to the Equine Photographers Podcast. Welcome. You're listening to the Equine Photographers Podcast, the place to learn from top equine professionals around the world as they share their experience and knowledge on what it takes to be an accomplished equine photographer. Now, here is your host, Peter DeMott. Hi, this is Peter DeMott from the Equine Photographers Podcast, and today we're going to be talking with Christina Scalera, and she is uh, an attorney, able to answer lots of questions that we might have, but she loves to work with creative entrepreneurs and business owners and has a lot of uh, materials already prepared for a lot of these areas. So, hi, Christina. Hi, Peter. How's it going? Good. So, you like to work with creatives. How, how does that all work out? You, I, I understand you're doing some creative things yourself, too. Yeah. So, I uh, just, you know, long story short, I was an attorney. Uh, I worked in-house. I worked in firms. And... Uh, Started my own blog, thought I was going to go a different path in life than the legal career um, that I was on. And basically, through the blog, ended up learning how to use Photoshop, learning how to create things, um, was introduced to this really great creative community full of photographers, wedding planners, all different kinds of different, you know, creative professionals. And uh, through that, I, I was just introduced to everyone and saw a huge need in the field for legal help, basically, and, you know, legal solutions for people that couldn't even afford a lawyer or something like that. And so that's how I got started uh, doing what I do now. And it's only been about six months that I've been doing this. So, yeah, so I've, I've been, you know, obviously, I've been a lawyer for a while now, and I've been doing legal work and things like that. But uh, it was only about six months ago that I declared, hey, I'm actually going to be an attorney that helps creative professionals. So my background is in trademarks and uh, licensing agreements. And so I just have translated that. It translates pretty nicely into what I'm doing now because I'm able to file trademarks on behalf of clients all over the United States. And, um, you know, I also sell contract templates. And depending on where a client is located, I can also help them edit and draft their contract. And so it's it's been a really great, um, a great year. It's been really fun creating this company and, and building this audience. Cool. So um, I understand you do have a couple of equine photographers on your list of clients. You don't need to share who they are, but did you tell me that you have a horse or that you ride as well? Yeah. So I've been riding for the last 19 years. I did the whole Arabian show circuit and, uh, you know, didn't go to nationals. We qualified, but I didn't go. And uh, so, yeah, I, I'm I'm in it with the horses. And so horse people are my people for sure. And uh, I love I love being able to help out um, equine photographers or equestrians any way I can. One of the things that I've noticed on several attorneys websites is that it says, you know, this is not legal advice and uh, that you have to retain the attorney in order to get real legal advice. Do you want to give us a little disclaimer before we get going? <laughs> sure. And, thanks, Peter. And explain how that works. 
Sure. Yeah. I, I just want to let you guys know, thank you so much for tuning in and listening. And while we're going to be talking about some really cool, fun topics, I want you to know that it doesn't, nothing that we talk about here today is legal advice and it doesn't necessarily pertain to your business. And that's because we're just talking really generally. If I were to give you legal advice, I'd have to sit down with you. I'd have to figure out how I could best help you look at your business and actually give you advice on exactly what you need to be doing in your business. That's not what's going to happen here today. We're just going to generally run through a couple topics that are really pertinent to you as an equine photographer. Um, so if you're interested in working together, that's certainly something that we could talk about later, but I'm actually pretty picky with my clients these days. So uh, just because you listen to the podcast, it doesn't mean you're, you're a client. Um, so yeah, that's that's pretty much all I, I need to tell your audience. <laughs> so what does it take to retain an attorney, not just you, but any attorney? What does that mean? Yeah, so that means that you, you know, you found an attorney that you like, and hopefully you've emailed them, hopefully you've uh, at least had a consultation with them to see if you're a good fit. Because I think one of the things that, you know, even as photographers, one of the things that we need to do is have consultations with our clients. Because, you know, if you don't know who you're going to be working with, you might be signing up for a whole bag of crazy or something. I mean, you don't want to do that. So just have the conversation with the client ahead of time, um, and figure out who you want to work with, um, as a, if you're a photographer, you know, having that conversation with the attorney ahead of time to see if you're a good fit, if they understand your business, because that's a, that's a huge one. A lot of attorneys are working with, um, you know, small businesses, but not necessarily solopreneurs or not necessarily photographers. They may not have a background in intellectual property law, like copyrights and trademarks. So, you know, that's important to know. That's important to know if you're dealing with like a family lawyer or an intellectual property lawyer, because those are two very different kinds of attorneys. Um, and so basically what it takes is you just go to their website and attorneys have made this incredibly simple and easy for you to do. <laughs> um, you are usually given a request to have that consultation with them or at least email them and get to know them a little bit. And from there, the attorney should take it away and email you back fervently. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about an important area starting out. Let's talk about what kinds of contracts it might be appropriate for an equine photographer to have. And, you know, equine photographers, we have edi editorial people, we have art people, we have event photographers, um, and we have portrait photographers, and then we have storybook photographers. I mean, it's just amazing the diversity within this niche of of equine photography. So what kinds of contracts might you help them to develop in the different categories? So in an effort to keep it simple, I, you know, the, the way to remember this is just to remember that any kind of relationship where there's an exchange of something. So there's an exchange of your time or there's an exchange of one of your photographs that's worth money. So Money or time, really, or what we're looking at, um, and any other relationship. So, you know, if you have someone that's helping you, maybe they're doing it for free, but under what terms and, you know, what does the course of that relationship look like? So all a contract really is, is a definition of that relationship. It's a definition of your obligations to that other person and their obligations to you. It's a definition of your expectations of that other person and their expectations of you. And it's a definition of what rights you have if something goes wrong with that person or that party, you know, if it's a company on the other side or something, um, and what rights they have if something goes wrong on your end. And so just making it really simple and straightforward, 
all a contract is and the, the times that you need it are where you're forming a relationship with someone else. So good examples of that, obviously, are the client contract. Um, if you're ever working with an editorial staff, creating some kind of contract that outlines what your intellectual property rights are, you know, like who actually has the copyright? Are you just licensing it to them or are you shooting for them and assigning all the copyright over and away to them where you have no more rights to that image? Um, so, you know, looking at, at what you're comfortable with and the biggest misconception I see with contracts is that uh, people are really afraid to put something in there or take something out. They, they you know, they, they just don't know. And so, in other words, they, they'll pick up a boilerplate contract and they'll think, uh oh, I can't touch it. Right. And it doesn't yeah. necessarily, right. Nothing, there might be some things in there that don't necessarily pertain to them and their business. And, that's really important because, you know, you don't in a contract, it's really important to say what you want to say and nothing else. So you don't want to have a lot of, you know, contemporaneous, contemporaneous, crazy, different language in there that doesn't apply to you in your situation um, that distracts from the relationship at issue. You also don't want to have too little information. So I'll see some contracts and they only have about a page of information. And I'm thinking, well, where's the rest? Because a page certainly isn't long enough to outline the terms of that relationship. A page is about how long you need to just basically define the purpose of the contract and who the people in the contract are and maybe a little bit more, you know, like maybe what services you're offering or something like that. Um, so those are important things to consider when you're creating a contract. Um, I know we talked offline about this, Peter. You brought this up. But the the trend is definitely towards streamlining a contract into normal everyday English. And the reason for that is because in the past, you know, you, I know you guys have all seen whether it's a joke or in your own life, um, you know, making fun of lawyers or whatever, all this, these crazy legalese type terms where it's like here and where and after blah, blah, blah. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so the, the trend is, as you brought up on our phone call yesterday, Peter is, is to get rid of that and to, get some language in there that people actually understand that they actually want to read because the whole purpose of a contract isn't just to sign something just in case something goes wrong. Or it's not to, it's not to pull something over on anybody. either. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, a lot of people you'd be surprised. They just pull a document off the internet, maybe edit it a little bit and then they use it for years to come um, just to have something to send to a client. And so, the whole point of a contract, like I said, is to define that relationship. And so, you know, if your client wants to cancel or whatever, their horse, unfortunately, can't be at the show and you were supposed to photograph them there, like they want to know what exactly that, like, what do they get back? Or do they lose all their money that they've given you so far? Or do you refund everything but the retainer? Um, you know, so those kinds of things that come up, um, not only will it help you to appear more professional with your clients, because they, they don't have to be contacting you at 3 a.m. and, you know, you're on vacation, you can't respond for a week, something like that happens. Um, you know, you have it all right there in the contract. And it's actually something that they've read because you've now put it into plain English. Right. So now, but a contract doesn't necessarily suddenly make everything more easy. Let's talk about, for example, if you are doing a farm call mm -hmm. and you're going to someone's farm to photograph their horse and their family, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And part of your contract is a liability release. Sure. Uh, that doesn't necessarily get you off the hook if you do something stupid, does it? <laughs> That's a great question, Peter. Yeah. So now this is the fun part. We get into to tort law. So 
what Peter's talking about are indemnification clauses. You may have seen them or sometimes called, you know, waiver of liability or release of liability. And those things are basically to make sure that your client knows that if, uh, if the horse does something stupid or, you know, if, if something crazy happens as often does with horses that, you know, you think that you're signing away, uh, they're signing away all their rights to sue you. And that's not necessarily true. What you're actually saying in a contract, the most that you can actually put in your contract for is, is to basically, uh, negate the risk of them suing you for something like, um, something that the court would consider an inherent risk. And that's actually the language in a lot of state statutes. So 46 states have statutes, uh, that have some kind of equine, uh, like limiting language on, uh, excuse me, limiting liability language, uh, okay. as it comes to farm animals or equines in particular. Cause they're so unpredictable guys, because exactly. things can happen. Right. And you know, the, the, courts have taken that into account as they've developed these statutes. So there's four states that don't have them. I don't have the list of the states in front of me right now, but I know California is one of them. Um, and so, you know, in those states, it's just important to to keep that language in your contract, even though there's no sp- state-specific statutory language, so that, you know, you do let your clients know that, hey, you know, this is your horse. He's unpredictable. Um, you know, there may be other people around you know, you need to, to maintain control of your horse or, you know, I could leave the situation because I don't feel safe or something like that. Um, you know, the other thing to consider is that there's something called third party beneficiaries to a contract. And that, that applies to the people that haven't signed the contract. And that's not necessarily, uh, that's not necessarily relevant when it comes to liability waivers or model releases for that matter, even. So, uh, you can't just sign a contract that, basically creates some kind of responsibility on someone else that never even read the contract or doesn't even know the contract exists or even has read it but never signed it. Um, So, for example, if you're doing a shoot and there's 10 people there, it's a good idea to have them all sign some kind of liability waiver at the shoot or model release at the shoot because they haven't signed your contract necessarily, right? It's like the person that... So if it's... A husband and wife and three kids, then both the husband and the wife would need to sign. And then would they need to put the minors' names on there too somehow? Yeah. I mean, if the minors' names are on there, they they can sign for their minor children since the the minors don't have the capacity to enter into that agreement. So, yeah, if you want to be super safe, that's definitely something you could do. Okay. And what would be the kinds of things that it – I mean, the courts will protect you in what you said, 47 states. 46. 46, okay. The the courts will protect you in in all states. Just four states don't have any kind of specific statutory language regarding For farm animals or horses. Okay. And what statutory language means that horses, it might say something like uh, Ohio, in Ohio, Law such and such says that if you get on a horse, it's your problem. Yeah, I, I can mean, actually it, pull up the Ohio one right now. Okay, <laughs> I uh, I have an equine photography template, and it actually comes with all forty six states that have the statutory language, so I have it right here in front of me. Yeah, so for example, you guys, I, you know, you've been to shows. Um, you know, if you've ever been to a state park that has your horse show there, or you've been to someone else's barn, or maybe your barn, and uh, usually like really uh, in a really obvious place, like right when you drive in on the fence or, um, you know, posted all over the barn or the riding arena, you'll see 
the the liability statute that we're talking about here. Um, so, for example, in Ohio, it says under Ohio law and references the code, an equine activity sponsor or professional shall not be liable for any injury to or the death of a participant in equine activities resulting from the inherent risk of equine activities. Um, and so, you know, the, the main goal here with, with the liability statutes is just to let your client know that horses are dangerous and that, you know, if you're going to be doing things around them, like crawling between their legs and or asking them to whatever, like if a horse is trained to rear up or something like that, like that's dangerous. And so you're not going to be accepting their liability for something like that. Um, the things that you, you, you can't contract out of though, like if you have a liability waiver and, um, you know, for example, if, if you put like, Oh, some, you make like a saddle out of paper and request your client step up into the saddle and it breaks. I mean, that's completely negligent. That's not something that you would be protected by. Um, or that the statute would protect you from. Or if you were a family photographer and you said, well, let's just put the baby up here on this saddle and, on the horse. And, you know, there's really no way of predicting the, how that horse might respond to a crying baby. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. Or I, I've even seen, you know, like I, I used to work with Arabs. I, I trained Arabs stuff like that. And, um, you know, they'd shake the plastic bags all over the place and they'd scare the horses and those like Liberty classes and stuff like that. And so, um, you know, if you're going to do that around your horse or, you know, like with horses, with, with the Arabian photography, I know a lot of times if it's a stallion, they'll bring a mare in so they can get that really like beautiful arched neck and like the flaring nostrils and everything. And, um, you know, if you're going to do that and you have like kids running around, I don't care if it's the best behaved stallion ever. I mean, that's, that's, I, I feel like in my, I mean, obviously it would take a court to decide this in each case, but like in my opinion, that would start to fall into the negligent range. You know, like that's, that's starting to get grossly negligent, putting a, a child around a stallion that's around mares. So, you know, like using your common sense to figure out like, okay, this is a safe situation or no, there's actually a thunderstorm coming in and this horse is really scared of thunder. Right. Uh, we need to get out of here. So, so uh, for the equine photographers, and, and p people ask this a lot, what do I need to know about horses? And really, they need to learn about horses before they go out start try to do photography of horses. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I that, would recommend they all get riding lessons and they get on, like, the orneriest, meanest, most sucking <laughs> horse ever for, like, one ride. <laughs> yeah. Now, I do know a photographer down in Florida, a quite famous photographer, and she was doing just what you were talking about. They were doing some uh, Arab stallions, and the horse got loose and ran it ran over her at a full canter, uh, broke every piece of camera equipment she had on her neck, and three or four ribs as well, so... It is. It can be dangerous if you don't know what you're doing, and it can be dangerous if you know what you're doing. So it is important to consider all these things. Yeah, um, for sure. And, you know, that being said, I mean, accidents can happen anywhere, anytime. So, you know, if you've reasonably educated yourself as to basic horse needs and basic horse, uh, you know, ways to be behave around horses, basic horse body language, that kind of thing. Um, you know, and you're a photographer, I, I think you're doing a really good job and, you know, it's just a learning curve that unfortunately there's going to be some things that happen, but 
I think well, in, and just like those statutes say that the animals can be unpredictable. They're not sure. a, they're not yeah. another human being. Right. So. And you know, they're prey animals, so a lot of people grow up with dogs and you know, they know what dogs do and they know how dogs act, but a prey animal is way different. So they respond differently to different external problems or stimuli or whatever. And so, um, you know, if you've never been around horses, but you've been around a lot of dogs, I would recommend you take some time to <laughs> get to know horses and, and why they spook at plastic bags and, and blue trash cans and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, the other thing is, is just have a really open mind to, um, to being unique and creative, but not be dangerous. I mean, they weigh like a thousand, twelve hundred pounds sometimes, maybe even more if you're dealing with, you know, big draft breeds or something. So, um, well, let me, let me throw in something here. here. When I'm out doing a portrait session, uh, my discussion with the subject will be something like this. Could you please do something like this? And then I might demonstrate it to him. And then I say, but only if you feel comfortable doing that. Because if they're too close to a spooky horse, maybe they're not going to stand as close as I'd like them to be. But you need to not instruct them to do things they're not comfortable with. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. So um, you were talking about a contract that was a page or more long. You know, the old legalese paperwork used to be a lot more scary, um, but a little more common language in your paperwork can make it much more, much less intimidating, maybe. And, and dealing with people that are used to contracts is one thing, but dealing with just a portrait client might be another thing. Um, can you sort of talk about how to make contracts comfortable for people? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question as well. It's uh, it's definitely a concern of a lot of photographers is, is that, you know, well, I'm afraid to put more things in my contract because I'm afraid that people are not going to want to sign. And then, you know, obviously I won't make booking. I won't make money. I'll be homeless on the streets. That's where our mind goes. So, um, yeah, so I get the, the rabbit hole. But at the same time, you know, where are you really at after you've basically sent over a piece of paper that has whatever, like the location and the amount of money that they owe you and nothing else on it, you know, like if they decide not to pay or if they decide not to show up or something like that, you don't even have like a, like some kind of clause that provides for inclement weather. Since you're with horses, you're probably outside, things like that. Um, you know, it's, it's really important not to have just those like little one pager documents. And so there's a couple of things you can do to make your contract a lot more palatable for everybody. Um, the things that I've seen my clients do, the, or I should say my customers do with, with their uh, contract templates, um, one thing that I highly recommend is that you put it online because then people don't even know how many pages it is. They just can scroll right through it. They can sign it on their phone. They can sign it with their finger. They can whatever, type their name in. Um, I'm actually a legal consultant for a company called HoneyBook. And even though they, they're desi they've designed their software specifically, and I'm actually a consultant for them, because I love their software so much and I approach them about this because um, it's software for people in the creative industry. And even though I, I'm not a photographer, I'm not a wedding planner, you know, their ideal client, so to say, um, I, I use it with my legal clients because it's just such a seamless platform. Everything is kept in one spot and, you know, the contracts are delivered 
effortless, you know, just totally effortlessly. And, um, you know, they can drag and drop, uh, I can put like different fields in there, um, that auto populate with their information and it automatically sends them invoices and I don't even have to think about any of it. And so it's, it's a really great thing for me. Um, I highly recommend HoneyBook for anybody else. Is it um, a, interested. it's not a bookkeeping program. They don't have bookkeeping yet that I'm aware of. Um, it's, it's just it's, to deliver contracts and have people sign them. Is that it? It's actually an entire client management platform. So the contracts are just a, a minor integration of the platform. So uh, if, if you want to learn more, you can go to honeybook.com. Um, but, you know, all that's to say is is I think that makes it a lot more palatable because, one, it's, pre- it's presented in an incredibly professional manner. Everything looks beautiful. The graphics are seamless. Um, the way it's set up is, is amazing and, you know, it's super, super simple for people to sign, which ultimately is for me the goal because I don't want people, you know, downloading a PDF and like scanning it back to me and like all that stuff. That's, that's just not going to fly with, with the clients that I have. Um, so I don't do that. Um, that's one thing that you can do is there's other online providers of, you know, different contract signing software. And there's some that don't even, you know, they don't have like the full client uh, management system behind it, like HoneyBook, but they have, you know, like DocuSign just has something that you can send documents and sign them. DocuSign. Um, I want to hear DocuSign. Yeah. So that's just the contracts, you know, so you don't get anything <laughs> else. It's just, you know, online contract signing. So so when um, they sign it, are they just typing in their name and then it takes into account their computer uh, address or something? Or how, you, yeah, how does it work? Yeah. You've already filled out everything. Um, they, they just, uh, you know, if you basically, when I start a new client account in HoneyBook, uh, I hit the little plus sign. It's all, you know, like wonderful technology these days. Millennials have like revolutionized the, the how easy it is, so I love it. Um, but anyway, so I just put the push the plus sign and um, type in all their information that they've given me off of whatever our consult or their initial um, you know touch point. And so I have their name, I have their phone number, I have their address. Um, and if I don't have any of that, I just leave it open and leave a blank space for there, and it actually tags it and, and highlights it so they can't sign it without first typing in their address or whatever else information. Wow. Yeah, it's okay. great. And then right after they sign it, so they can sign it with their finger, they can sign it by typing their name in. Um, you know, it's, it's legally valid and binding. Courts recognize um, online or, or electronically signed documents these days, as long as it's not like a, a will, you know, like they're not going to let you sign a will or, you know, sell property online. But, but it needs to be on their computer. It can't be on, you know, a borrowed computer somewhere. Probably. As long as it's them doing it. Yeah, sure. So, yeah. Uh, you know, the, I, that's a good point. I mean, I, I hadn't really thought about that, but I guess, yeah, your IP address is logged at some point. So, right. um, you know, to prove that it's them. But, you know, certainly the other way to show something like that is you have the chain of emails going back and forth. You have the voicemail from them, the whatever that basically shows like, yeah, they knew about the contract. It wasn't just like going to the wrong email address and getting signed by some robot in outer space or something. Right, right. Okay. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, long story short, I think the online... Uh, I think the online delivery methods make contracts a lot, lot more palatable for people and make them more comfortable with them because, uh, you know, especially if you do have a younger audience, um, they'll, they're going to want this, like, sorry, but they, you know, it just, it's something that you have to figure out if, if your audience is 30 or less, because they don't, they won't understand the PDFs and they won't sign it and they won't, you know, book you, they'll, they'll go somewhere else because they don't have to talk to a person. And I know that's kind of sad, but it's true. Very interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. So 
that's that's one way that you can do it. I've also had people take my contract templates and put them into something like InDesign or Photoshop and make mm-hmm. them really, really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, obviously. So instead of being stuff. a contract like a realtor's contract that has yeah. a number by each line, right. you know, it's like um, uh, we want to change line number three to this, you know, or something. Right. Yeah. yeah. So instead, it's, it's you know, a lot more um, palatable. Yeah, beautiful. It's a lot more um, engaging. Um, I don't recommend that because that seems like a lot of work to me, <laughs> especially when you can just deliver it online and have it all streamlined and, and located in one spot or, you know, all in your email or something like that. Um, but, you know, your original question was, was how do you make people more comfortable with contracts? And I, th- I think that's only part of it, you know, like obviously the delivery and the, and, and the receiving of the contract. But um, you know, the second part is obviously making it in language that they can understand and that they will read. And then, um, you know, the last part of that is doing some client education. <laughs> yeah, that's what um, I was going to throw in here. It, the whole thing is about education when you're yeah. writing a contract. You don't want somebody to grab a contract and just sign the last line. Exactly. Yeah, you you actually do want them to read your contract, um, you know, as much as it may feel like. Uh, sometimes, you know, you're just sending it out and kind of crossing your fingers, hoping nothing happens. You actually do want them to to read your contract and say, oh, okay, I understand this. Or no, I had a question about this. Um, so that you're able to educate them as to why that provision is there. Um, you know, the other part of it, client education is I see a lot of things in contracts that probably shouldn't be there. So for example, when I work with wedding planners, they all want to put in, um, you know, they they need a hot meal, that they and their team need a hot meal. And I totally understand why. I mean, they're working 12-hour days. They're not able to get out to get food or something like that. But that's really something, in my opinion, that's more appropriate for a client education um, portion. So like a lot of photographers in the wedding industry have these wedding magazines nowadays. And so they're booking very high-end clients that are spending you know, anywhere from like, I don't know, I've, I've talked to everybody who books from three to $15,000 weddings. And so um, what they've done is they've, they've gone out in advance and they've either done it themselves in InDesign or Photoshop or had someone do it for them. And they've created these photography magazines. And basically what it is, um, if you're it, like, stop me, if this is totally, <laughs> um, not something that you're, that, that, or something that you've already talked about. And I'm just like beating a dead horse. Sorry. No. Guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so so, so I they put it together an educational magazine to give the client exactly yeah. So it, it basically it, it it's a very beautiful way to present you know who they are as a photographer, what they do, and obviously it's filled with their photos, um, you know, and then some of the things that that they require of their clients. So for example, they'll have a sample timeline in there for the wedding day, and so you know if you're just doing a portrait session, maybe you don't need like a whole magazine, but maybe you just have a workbook for somebody that you know, walks them through how to pick your clothes or, you know, here's the timeline. How for many outfits to bring. Yeah. Things right. like that. Yeah. Like, so there's, the- I think what we're getting at here is that you can have educational material in terms of here are my expectations, uh, written into some paperwork, but the legally binding part, you don't want to have, you must, bring three outfits or I'll sue you, you know, that kind of thing. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Like, are you really going to try to invalidate a contract or, or, you know, they didn't bring enough clothes? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) 
it's, that would be silly. Right. Yeah. And, um, so it's, and it, it makes your contract longer. So it's like what we were talking about. I mean, it's a psychological thing, but the longer your contract is, the more, I guess, serious people perceive the value of the relationship. Um, you know, and we don't want to deter anybody. We just, we want to make sure that everything is clearly outlined and defined in the contract, um, that needs to be there. Okay, I want to move on to uh, another topic because it's a topic that all of the photography forums have discussions about, and that's people stealing their pictures offline <laughs> and uh, copyright and all this sort of thing. And and we were talking about this before, and I've always been confused by the copyright law about uh, you know if there's an infringement then you have 90 days to register the picture. But I always thought, well, how is that fair? Because don't you have to register it ahead of time? And I guess that's, you clarified it for me. So maybe discuss that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So what the, the law says in this country is basically like, for example, if a magazine were to take your picture off your website or something, and they were they use it, you know. Let's just say they use it without your permission. Um, so now you're you're, or you know, whatever, another blog or something like that. It doesn't really matter. Um, just someone else has taken your photo, and they put it wherever on their own blog, their magazine, their Instagram, something. And um, you know, they didn't give you credit, which credit, by the way, is not a defense for copyright infringement. You can't just attribute photos to other people um, and then you know Be get off free and clear. Yeah. Right. I mean, you've still taken it. Now you've just let them know that you, you, you know, so, um, yeah, the, the thing about this is if you, if you decide to, you know, you send that cease and desist letter, you say, Hey, you know, you need to take my photo down from your website or you need to give me credit. Um, you know, if you're going to leave it up or whatever, you know, like, or payment. Exactly. That, that yeah. was exactly where I was going, you know, like, Hey, I usually charge this much for my photos and, uh, so send you know, it, send it you, today. you've used it in this way. Right. So, um, so, you know, if it goes beyond the cease and desist letter and you actually, you know, it's it's something that you feel like you do need to start finding a lawyer for a lawsuit if you haven't already done so with the cease and desist letter, um, you know, that that at that point it you you need to register your copyright. And so the way that you do that is you just go to copyright.gov and they have an it's called the ecosystem. It's super simple. Um, it's the most intuitive government. <laughs> it's still ugly, but it, it's the most intuitive government filing system I've seen. Um, and it actually walks you through step by step um, as to how to file your copyright. And so, you know, one of the other things that people often do incorrectly is they will file, um, you know, so I, I work with a lot of surface pattern designers. And one of the things they do sometimes. What kind of designers? Surface what? pattern. So like surface the covers pattern. of your notebooks or like the back oh, of your phone it. case. Okay. Yeah, it's called surface pattern design. Um, and so, you know, sometimes they'll register like a whole collection and it's not a huge deal if their collection has, you know, six images in it, but if their collection has whatever, 2000 images in it and, um, you know, someone, someone has taken one of those images or one of those patterns and used them on their website. Well, now they've just taken a little tiny bit. And so whether that's copyright infringement, it gets, you know, they've taken a little uh, tiny bit of co the registered copyrighted material. And so, so how does really that apply to photographers? I mean, exactly. If yeah, so if, if you're you do a photographer, yeah, yeah, if you're a photographer and you're just registering all of your photos, um, 
you know, which you can definitely do like after each, you can do batches. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You could just register the batches. Even if you've done that, um, if you have something where there's, there's possibly a pending infringement case, it's a good idea to go back into the system and register each photo that that's been taken, um, individually, or, you know, if you're a popular photographer and you see some of the same images being stolen over and over, then, you know, go ahead and register those in anticipation that one day somebody big might use it and you might have to sue them. Um, so yeah, those are the kinds of things you can do, but otherwise, you know, you obviously have a copyright in the image, the the moment that it's taken. Um, so the, uh, the copyright is fixed at creation in some kind of tangible medium is the legal word or phrase. Um, so, you know, you have that copyright, but yeah, once, once you find out or at the time that you find out or at the time that you should have known, or should have found out that's that's the time that the clock starts ticking and that you on have the this, 90 days right okay. yeah that you have the three months to to grab that um registration and then go ahead and and sue them in order to claim um you know the benefits provided under federal law for uh, a, a copyright lawsuit so those benefits and are i was going to say there's differences between willful infringement versus accidental infringement and things like that. So, you know, somebody that willfully has removed your information from the picture, they're in for a bigger surprise than the person who, you know, a fifth grader who steals your picture and doesn't realize he's not allowed to do it. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. And, you know, the ultimate determination of infringement is actually up to a court of law. So right. a lot of people, I'm, I'm very hesitant to use the word infringement until, you know, a court has said there's been infringement because, that's not really for, for us to decide. I mean, obviously as, as attorneys advocating for our clients, we can allege, you know, we can, we can uh, advocate that yes, there's been an infringement, but um, whether there's that absolute ruling as to whether something infringes is, is up for a court to decide once they've looked at, you know, one work versus another or how it's been used or whatever. Um, Cause you know, there's obviously all kinds of ways that actually aren't infringement, you know, like fair use or something like that. Right. Um, Teachers but, you and know, things. Fair use is pretty hard to come by, you know, like unless you're like a nun teaching, you know, a, a public school in Uganda, like it's fair use is, is a pretty difficult thing to assert. So, um, but yeah, I mean, generally speaking, it's, it's a really good idea to register your photos in batches. Obviously that's, that's more economical than registering each photo. But, you know, like I said, if you have photos that are constantly being ripped off, um, you know, and I know photographers hate watermarks, but that might be the time to figure out like, some kind of watermark for your photo if, if it's a photo that's sure continuously taken right now um when i sell images to let's say a veterinary catalog or a equine catalog uh what i do is i write a license to use agreement and i'm not selling them my picture i'm selling them a license to use and therefore, I stipulate that this is for, let's say, an in- internal editorial article up to full page use, uh, and that these other images can only be used up to a quarter page or something like that. So if they want a bigger usage, then they have to pay more money. So uh, if, if I have a client that does an editorial article and they've liked my pictures and they want to use three or four of them and they want one of them really big at the beginning of the article. And I write this license and then they put it on the cover of the magazine. 
what, I mean, what are my ways of pursuing that uh, in terms of the copyright laws and how much I'm going to get out of it? I guess the, the question is, uh, here's the one I was thinking of before this. There's lots of people that are not going to be worth suing. And there's a lot of situations where a copyright attorney isn't even going to look at it unless there's some big pockets, right? So what criteria does an attorney use and what are our abilities to, let's say, twist the arm of a magazine or an individual who takes proofs and tries to sell their horses with them? You know, stuff like that. We see online, we'll see things on Facebook. Somebody will take a proof image from a show and it still says proof on it and they'll use it to sell their horse. And what, you know, what can we do on a lower level that isn't $20,000 to really kind of put the screws on somebody doing something like that? Yeah. So the best thing to do is ask, you know, just tell, like start a conversation with them and, you know, don't write that email. Like, when you first find it and you're flaming mad, you know, like that might be the time to talk to a friend and, um, you know, have them either talk you down from that ledge or say, Oh, wow. You know, that's like, I mean, I just hypothetically like that's whatever. I'm, I don't want to use a horse magazine, but that's a big magazine. Um, you know, they, they, they really should have paid for that. They normally pay for their images, something like that. Um, and yeah. And I mean, find the appropriate people and start the conversation, um, you know, if it's, if it's something that's going to be a couple thousand, like, you know, you you normally charge whatever, like a thousand dollars per image and they've used like three of your images or something like that. That's, that starts to look like a really nice, <laughs> uh, you know, like a really nice thing to start to go after as an, as an attorney. Um, if you, from you, a photographer, three or $4,000 is a good number just, to start with. Is yeah, that right. Saying? Like to send a cease and desist letter and see what you can get from there. I mean, you don't actually, the, the thing about cease and desist letters is that they're not legally binding. So, mm. um, you know, maybe the magazine or maybe the blog or whatever knows that maybe they don't. And, you know, at that point, maybe they, they try to work something out with you. If they don't, you know, the great thing about registering and, and, uh, you know, filing and registering for your copyright is that you're actually entitled to attorney's fees. If you, you know, if you, if there is a finding of infringement. And so, um, you know, obviously you have to pay for your own travel, things like that. But like, that's, that's something to consider too, is like, if it's, um, if it's something big, then, or if it was willful, um, as you talked about earlier, there's definitely a difference. So if it was a willful infringement, uh, where they willingly took it and knew, um, but didn't care or whatever, um, that's, you know, those are all situations where it starts to look like a better fit for some kind of further action than just a cease and desist letter or a payment demand letter. Um, what about the person another, that's stealing the proof and trying to sell their horse online on Facebook? I mean, yeah, at that you, point, I would just I would just uh, file a, a, what's called a Digital Millennial Copyright Act notice uh, with Facebook. So that's called the DMCA takedown. And basically they, they have their page shut down <laughs> because they're using your work illegally. And so obviously it would be nicer to just kind of message them and say, cause I I'm guessing they were, they were a client of yours or they were at a show, um, and got show proof. So maybe you never even talked to them, but you know, if they're a client of yours, especially just have that conversation and say, 
listen, this isn't cool. I wouldn't walk into your house and take a pair of jeans and then, you know, or like, you know, I wouldn't break a lamp in your house and expect to just like walk out unscathed. Like I, I pay, this is my money. This is how I make a living. Um, you know, you've, you've broken, you've stolen something from me. So, you know, can you just like take it down or pay me or whatever? Um, and then, you know, obviously if, if it gets nasty or, you know, if, if they don't respond as often happens, that's, that's the appropriate time to, you know, whatever, send Pinterest or Facebook or whoever it is that is hosting the material, um, a nice little letter that, or, or, you know, fill out their actually, you know, the bigger sites like that actually already have something that you can just fill out really quickly and, um, you know, get your image taken down. They take down the image or the whole site. I mean, it depends. Yeah. Yeah, They, they, um, oftentimes they'll end up even shutting down somebody's account, you know, if it's happened more than once or something like that. And so, um, yeah, I mean, if or if you know they they have like five pictures on there, it's their fi- it's their Facebook page. They might end up just shutting down their entire Facebook account, um, you know, until they talk to Facebook and get it reinstated or whatever. But uh, it's, I mean, the the laws of the United States, uh, you know, as as an intellectual property attorney, they they definitely favor intellectual property holders. Um, right. You know, in that oh, regard. Now you so, said something here real quick. Yeah. That reminds me to throw in a disclaimer. Uh, This podcast is listened to all over the world. Oh, okay. (laughs) So the uh, United Kingdom, for example, uh, in in the U.S., if you're a portrait photographer, if you take the picture, it's your copyright immediately. Uh, Over in Europe, if you are hired to do portraits... They consider that work for hire, and the person who hired you owns the copyrights. So there are some sticky wickets uh, on a worldwide basis to be careful of. And I know things have changed recently in Canada uh, where they are less like uh, UK and more like USA. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean... Love you other countries, but I, I kind of feel like um, the United States for a long time has led the charge as far as intellectual property matters jo- go, just because uh, we are such a we are such a, a society society that's so familiar with litigation and we're so litigious and, um, <laughs> you know, good, bad or whatever. Um, you know, it's just we we uh, we definitely are are very proactive when it comes to um, our our IP here. And so, you know, it's why you see a lot of people file for federal patents here in the United States, um, you know, even from other countries, because they want the protection here. So. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I sorry, guys, I, I uh, am an intellectual property attorney here in the United States. But obviously, some of this, like, especially the contract stuff, um, you know, relationships are everywhere. So they're not, it's not necessarily limited to what we talked about. Um, you know, what we, what we talked about isn't necessarily limited to the United States. Obviously, the copyright law stuff is that's federal law of the United States. Um, and I'm, I'm not, I'm just, to be honest, I'm not familiar with other countries, because I'm not an international um, copyright attorney. But right. Yeah. Okay. So, hey, I have one more topic, and we're almost out of time, so it needs to be relatively brief. But um, I think a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions about model releases regarding photography. And, uh, you know, basically a model release protects the photographer and the person um, such that... um, Let's say the photographer can use 
pictures for promotional use, like on their website or something like that, if it's in the model release. Um, but horses really don't have, let's say, they're not a person. So I'm not sure how all that works with model releases, but I think it's really important with people. As opposed, and it all depends on a lot of things. Like if it's for editorial use, you don't need a model release. Uh, if it's for commercial use, you certainly can't just take somebody's picture and use it for a Viagra ad, for example. Um, you have to get their permission uh, and pay them a, according to what they're giving away. So why don't you? Can you touch on that a little bit? I know I was kind yeah, of sure. kind of meandering yeah. through that a little bit, but of course, yeah. So I mean, especially like in the portrait type scenarios where you're working in private at a client's farm or something like that. Obviously, the model release is really important. Um, you know, at a show where there's no expectation of privacy, it's public. It's anybody can come. There's obviously photographers walking around everywhere. I mean, I, I think you'd be hard pressed to to need a model release there. So, well, it um, depends on how the image gets used, though. Yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, like, if you're putting somebody into a major magazine, they, they thought that they were just going to be on some, you know, like, local 4-H show website. That's that's totally different. Um, I think it's a good idea as a photographer to always get someone's permission if, if you can figure out who they are and go back to them and just let them know how you're using an image because that's just, I mean, have respect for other people and, and you know, like, whatever. Like, maybe they, they were, whatever, fat at the time and they lost a bunch of weight and they don't want that photo up or something. Um, especially if you're, you know, if it's one of your clients, of course, that's just part of providing a good client experience, um, is, is always keeping them, um, being open and transparent with your clients. But as far as horses go, um, you know, unfortunately, in my opinion, they're considered property. And so, you know, it's like taking a picture of someone's car or a picture of someone's laundry hamper or something like that. I'm not comparing them to those, but I'm just saying like, horses are property. And so, uh, as much as we would hope that, you know, whatever our, our horse wasn't taken, you know, somebody didn't take like an unscrupulous picture of our horse and put it somewhere. Um, unfortunately there's, there's not really any kind of repercussion that I'm aware of at this time to, uh, you know, if someone were to take a picture of your horse and put it somewhere, um, obviously if they're, if they're doing something deceptive with it, that's another issue, you know, like if they took a picture of your horse and then they're trying to sell it on Craigslist or something like that's a different thing. Um, right. Actually it's, it gets a little, comp it gets more complicated than that. For example, let's say I take a picture of somebody's horse and I use it to promote a, a wormer, you know, for, for horses. But that would be different than if I said, Joe Smith at so-and-so's farm uses this wormer and then used a picture of his horse. Uh, you can't do that, uh, you know, because you're attributing something to somebody that they haven't agreed to, you know, to do. Sure, so, yeah. It, and we're starting to get into, like, privacy, you know, right to privacy and things correct. like that. So, um, so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely things like that to consider. I mean, again, I, I don't want to... Get too specific. I, well, yeah, yeah that and I, I don't want to ever scare people away from doing the things that that really charge them up. Like, I don't want to scare you out of being a photographer ever. You know, I want to encourage you guys to go out there and create. And just to be honest, if you're in business long enough, you're going to have problems with copyright, you're going to have legal problems, you're going to have problems with your client contract. It's just it's kind of the cost of doing business. And you know what? 
you deal with those problems, you learn from the mistakes and you move on. Um, and, you know, obviously educating yourself by listening to podcasts like this or, you know, going to webinars or seminars or whatever it is, that's, that's all helpful. But, um, you know, there's, there's always a situation that hasn't been accounted for yet or that someone on the internet hasn't, you know, talked about on Reddit or something like that. So, um, so yeah, I mean, no matter what the situation is, just use your common sense, be as open and transparent with your clients as possible. Um, you know, in other words, tell them what you might, how you might use the pictures and make sure it's okay with them. Yeah, sure. And you know, even if you don't say that outright, you know, like I have some clients that they, their picture is not necessarily equine, but their pictures are used all over the place and their clients know that it's why they book them, you know, like they book them because they, they're, you know, they, they hope that their, their pictures are used on big wedding blogs and things like that. Um, you know, so they're like excited, you know, they, they're, they're booking this, this photographer because she's always published on so-and-so's blog or whatever. And so, um, you know, there's, there's also that history, um, of the photographer to consider, obviously, you know, having that, that stated in your contract is always a good idea, but, you know, I think a client would be hard pressed to say, well, I didn't know she was going to put it on a blog. If, you know, the first thing on her website is I put everybody's photos on my blog or something. Right. Um, So, you know, those kinds of things. (laughs) Okay. So uh, again, it's a matter of communication and, you know, I mean, I think every legal problem comes down to a lack of communication and, finances. Lack of communication and, and missed expectations too. Now, one, one argument that I've seen is that, uh, you know, at a, at a horse show, um, on a private farm, uh, even though it's a public horse show, everybody can walk in and walk out if they want. Um, you know, I've had seen people, say that, oh, well, I get, a, I get a model release on every single person, you know, before I, you know, take any pictures. And I'm going, that's completely unnecessary. Uh, you know, it, like you said, it's a public situation. It's not uh, a restricted area. And uh, it's not a private session. It's a, everybody's got cameras and they're all taking pictures. And if you go there expecting to be anonymous, that's your problem, not our problem. Right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, I think it's, it's getting harder and harder to assert that you have a right to privacy somewhere with, with mobile phones and everything like that. Um, you know, right. I, I think we're all pretty aware that we have cameras on us pretty much 24-7. Um, you know, in, in a situation like that, I mean, just throw up a sign and take a picture of the sign. It says, you know, filming in progress or whatever. I'm sure you guys mm-hmm. have seen those signs at restaurants or wherever. Um, oh, you know, if you're that concerned about it, I mean, it just, that sounds like a lot of work to get everybody's signature. Right. No, it seems ridiculous. Just in case they're, they're on a photo. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, let me ask you that we're closing it right now, but, sure. uh, I need to know how people can initiate a relationship with you and how they can reach you. And I think you said something about a contract list and a, and a texting yeah. message that they can send. Yeah. So if you're in the United States, you can text the number 44222. And what you'll do is is you'll text the phrase 16 legal. So 16 legal, L-E-G-A-L. So 16 legal to 44222. And you'll automatically get a contract checklist. So if you have a contract um, or if you're putting together a contract, that's something that could be really useful for you um, when you're considering what to include. 
I also sell an equine photography template. <laughs> um, it's, I like it, <laughs> obviously. Uh, it's, it's available for immediate download. And like I said, it comes with all 46 of the states that have some kind of statutory language uh, so that you can insert that right into the contract. It's just kind of a, a ready-made turnkey contract for, for equine photographers. But yeah, anybody else that wants to find me or they want to grab a contract template, you can come to christinascalera.com. And the way that's spelled is C H R I S. T-I-N-A, Scalera, S-C-A-L-E-R-A. So that's christinascalera.com. And my name's weird enough that if you Google me, you'll find me. So um, if you're outside of the United States, you want to grab that contract checklist, still applicable to you, go ahead and just email me, hello at christinascalera.com, and I'll be happy to help you out. Right. Now, uh, what does it mean to be retained? You, you said that... Um Basically, it's making sure that you're a good fit for the situation, right? Yeah. So a lawyer sends out an, a client engagement letter typically or a new client contract um, is sometimes the new thing to do. But yeah, so you'll you'll know you'll be signing a contract to, to enter into legal services with an, with an attorney before any kind of legal services commence. And, uh, you know, typically, unless it's on a contingency fee or, you know, you're some kind of... Um, uh, you know, low income client that, that they're helping out, pro, you know, pro bono wise, it's, it's, you're, you're typically spending a pretty good chunk of, of uh, money up front for a retainer or something like that. So you'll definitely know that you're someone's client because uh, your, your wallet will tell you so. <laughs> but your, but your contracts that are templates, that's not, oh, yeah, those are, no, those are just templates to download. Those aren't, yeah, you don't need to retain me. Those are immediately available. Um, those are, purely just templates like you would get off legal zoom or something like that, except for they're tailored right to equine photographers. Cool. All right. Yeah. Well, Hey, thank you so much. And you know, I had asked my listeners to give me questions that they had, and I think we covered several of them. Um, but, I think we could uh, talk for days, Peter. <laughs> I think so too. Now, would you mind if people sent you questions or is that inappropriate yeah, go for it yeah that's totally fine uh yeah i think that's that's great i i won't be able to answer all of them but i would encourage you to at least ask and i will tell you uh if i can or can't answer your question or at least point you in the right direction sounds great yeah thank, for sure thank you so much and this is of course. this is the equine photographers podcast we hope you'll listen uh to all of the past uh episodes as well as get on iTunes and rate and review the podcast to help spread the news and share it with your friends as well. Uh, goodbye, everybody. Thanks for joining us for the Equine Photographers Podcast. We hope you were inspired to grow and improve as an equine photographer by listening today. Join us for the next episode to learn and grow and to be inspired as we interview some of today's outstanding image makers.